0: Welcome to CLA, Christian Life Academy, as we continue our study of the book of 2 Peter. And we're starting in 2 Peter this morning, 2 Peter chapter 2. And we'll look at verses 1 through 10a. I'll explain that in a minute. 1 through 10a. I've entitled the message um, this morning, Beware of False Teachers. Beware of False Teachers. Last week we looked at the latter half of uh, chapter 1. We know that as an apostle of Jesus Christ, Peter was concerned for the spiritual well-being of the church. And he wanted to remind them of, the, of their faith, what their faith is based upon. Okay? It wasn't based upon whims or wishes or feelings. It was based upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, as we saw, if you remember, he used the word remind, or some form of it, three times in verses 12 through 15. In this, as we tried to point out, Peter's, 2 Peter is very much like De- Deuteronomy where Moses reminded the people of the of Israel, of the covenant, and how God expected his covenant people to live. And truly, we should think thank God daily for the reminders he has left us, including the Holy Spirit, including the Word, and including even the ordinances and structure of our church that helps us to know how we are to live before him. You know, and it's, I guess in a, in a sense, it's kind of a sad testimony of the fact that we need so many reminders. You know, you'd think as God's people, we would pretty much understand what we're supposed to do. But here we are in the first century uh, of the church uh, and first decades of the church, shortly, you know, what within 20, 30 years after Christ's death. And yet, Peter's having to remind them of what their faith should be of what they should be trusting in and how they should live. And so it wouldn't be unsurprising that we, in this time period in, the, in 2023, would need to be reminded. Be reminded by the word, reminded by the Holy Spirit, reminded by our gathering here in church and the preaching of that word, of what we need to do. So in this case, Peter apparently had a premonition, though, as we read there in chapter 1. He had a premonition that he was going to die very soon, and perhaps he was in prison, perhaps he had already been sentenced to death, we don't know. But he wanted to establish his readers in what he called the present truth, which is the gospel, and what God requires of them before his departure, or the putting off of his tent or tabernacle, as he called it. So Peter goes on in the latter part of chapter 1, if you remember, to give us two witnesses, two witnesses, or proofs, that what he had been, has been preaching is, is true. The first, of course, was his eyewitness account of the transfiguration. And in that, we both saw a foretaste of heaven and a confirmation of Jesus' own words of prophecy that he had given to his disciples less than a week before that event. Uh, Peter's witness of the father's testimony regarding his son, Jesus was an affirmation that Christ was indeed the Messiah, and therefore uh, their, their trust in him was not in vain. And secondly, Peter tells us in verses 19 through 21 that the word of God itself confirms that Jesus was and is the Christ and that they and we do well to take heed of that. It is a light to our path, as we're told in Psalm 119, verse 105, that delivers us from the darkness of our sin-stained souls into the glorious light of the children of God. In fact, Psalm 36, verse 9 says, For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we shall see light. And of course, it behooves us, beloved, to walk in the light as he is in the light, as John tells us in 1 John 1, seven. And we also noted that God's word is not open to private interpretation. That's what Peter says there in the latter part of chapter 1. It's not open to private interpretation, but is subject to the Holy Spirit and what he intended it to mean, not what we think it would sound like or what we feel like. It's what he intended it to mean. Thus, we must study and pray for wisdom and understanding that we might know what God expects of us through his word. So we'll move on now to chapter 2 and study Peter's strong condemnation of false teachers and destructive heresies that were troubling believers in his day, and which, frankly, are paralleled in our day today. So let's look at chapter 2, and we'll read, I'll read the first 10 verses, or at least first, uh, through verse 10a. And then we'll break it down. So let's look at 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 1. There are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false prophets among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. But covetousness—they will by covetousness they will exploit you with descriptive words. For a long time their judgment is, has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, and, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example of those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. And We'll stop there in the middle of verse 10. Again, I'll explain that in a little bit, why we're doing that. So, although Peter is concerned about the severe persecution of his readers, that's really spoken of, of course, in the first chapter, he's concerned about what they're enduring. He is equally, if not more, concerned with the threat of these false teachers and their destructive impact on the church as a whole. Let's read verses 1 through 3 again and get a focus in on what he's talking about here. Verse 1: But they there were also false prophets among the people. Now he's going back to the text there in, in chapter 1 uh, about uh, the cut- that we didn't follow cunningly devised fables and, and talking about. Other prophecies and those who were false prophets in the past. We didn't follow, um, there were false prophets among the people, but as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. In all of chapter 2, and really chapter 3 as well, Peter will be found soundly refuting these false teachers. That's kind of his goal here, to totally expose them and rebuke them uh, before his readers. In fact, as Peter Lethart points out in his commentary, he said refuting, though, is not quite the word for Peter's language. Rather, pummeling. Denouncing, castigating, condemning, attacking, and assaulting is a more accurate description of what Peter does to his opponents, in other words he doesn 't waste any words he 's going to hit these guys really hard and accurately describe who they are, pretty nasty people who are disrupting the church okay so he 's not playing nice with them he 's being very bold and very uh, determined to expose them and show how evil they are and the impact they have on the church. in fact, uh, uh, Lethar goes on to say this is this second chapter of Second Peter contains some of the harshest rhetoric in the New Testament as far as how he's, he's speaking to these people. He is not treating them lightly. And we shouldn't treat false teachers lightly either. It's pretty obvious that Peter is not going to tolerate these wolves uh, in sheep's clothing which, uh, that are attacking the church. And therefore, he deals with them as, as severely as des- they deserve to be, be treated, really. And we too, beloved, should not tolerate false teachers in the body of Christ today. Satan loves to deceive both sinners and unbelievers and believers as, as well, and he would like nothing more than to sow confusion in the church of Christ. Unfortunately, he has many helpers today, including those who claim to be followers of Christ. So we need to be careful and be on a guard and be aware of what's happening in the church around us. Peter looks back in Jewish history And he reminds his readers of uh, that Israel of old, God's chosen people, were plagued by false prophets, even as they are, and we are today. And they will no doubt be troubled further by false teachers in the future. In fact, God had some very harsh words for those false prophets in the past. We think of Peter's words as being very harsh. Well, God didn't treat them lightly either. He had very strong words. In fact, turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 13. Deuteronomy chapter 13. We'll look at a few verses there. Verses 1 through 5. This is God's view of the false prophets. Okay? We should think of in the same terms. Of, again, we don't um, treat them nicely. We don't act as, though, oh, they're just people who are a little bit you know, off, off, the, off the truth. No, they are severe wolves. They're wolves in sheep's clothing that are seeking to destroy the church and lead us away from Christ. So we should take these warnings and admonitions seriously. Chapter 13 of Deuteronomy, verse 1 And there arises, if there arises among you, a prophet or a dreamer of dreams, and he gives you a sign or a wonder. And the sign or wonder comes to pass, of which he spoke to you, saying, Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice, you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Verse 5, but that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has spoken in order to turn you away from the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of bondage to entice you away from the, from the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall put away the evil from your midst. So God doesn't treat these prophets as or dreamer notice he starts out by saying well if this dreamer of dream makes a prediction prediction and it comes true okay that's great but if that in that prediction he tells you to turn away from God or to believe in some false uh, uh, truth that's been brought forth doesn't matter whether his quote his prediction came true if he's turning away from God he deserves death he deserves to be put away so that's a pretty severe picture of how God treats it and now Peter is in the same way is saying these False prophets, these false teachers, are destructive to the church, and we need to treat them. Obviously, he's not telling us to, to put them to death, but he's saying, don't deal lightly with them. Get rid of them. Get them out of your church. You know, you know, kick them out. Don't let them be a, an influence on the body of Christ. God didn't tolerate false prophets, and as Peter tells us, God's not all too thrilled with false teachers either at his time period who are trying to deceive the saints. So Peter uses a future tense here. Meaning that though there are already false teachers, yet they should expect more, and they should therefore be on guard against them, and therefore we should be on guard against them. So he's using a future tense, there will be more false teachers, and we, need, we should be aware of that already. And Jesus himself warned his disciples in Matthew chapter 24 and verses 4 and 5 concerning false teachers when he said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So the Lord himself warned us that there's going to be those who will come and say, you know, if not, if not saying that they're the Messiah, they'll say, in Christ's name, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. Well, if they're contradicting the word of God, obviously it doesn't matter whose name they use. We need to reject them. We need to turn away from them. We need to kick them out from our church and not allow them to have that kind of an influence. Also, Paul warned in Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 30, for I know this, that after my departure savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Now, that particular context, Paul is is um, calling all the Ephesian elders together as he's going back through Asia and he's going back to Jerusalem, and he's warning these Ephesian elders, whom he taught for two or three years, the truth, and he's saying, you know, these people are going to come. Don't, you know, don't tolerate them. Don't allow them to rise up and he says they're not just coming from the outside but from within yourself there are those whom you've trusted whom you've looked to to teach you suddenly are going to start drifting away from the truth and start spreading destructive heresies and if you know the history of our church even recently within the last few years you can probably name a few men whom we looked up to with great respect or at least thought that they were you know good true leaders of the church and suddenly they've drifted off into if not sexual immorality other destructive heresies denying even the trinity and other things so we have to be on guard. We can't just assume, well, we're a good church. We know the truth. No problem. We won't have any issues as long as we, we are faithful to it. Well, there's going to be people that could even rise up within us who come into us as uh, wolves in sheep's clothing and seem to be wonderful people and seem to know the truth, and yet eventually they begin sowing discord and lies and deceptions among us. So it, we have to be on guard. We can't be naive to think all's well that ends well, no problems. No, Satan loves to send uh, Spread discord amongst the church. He loves to cause problems because he doesn't want the church to grow. He doesn't want the church to be strong. He wants to tear it down as much as possible. So we need to be on guard against those type of things. Those false teachers, by the way, were false in two ways. First, that they claim to be a part of the church. Perhaps even saying they're sent by God to teach the church. And we have them today in these faith healers and those who claim they have received a special revelation from God or the Holy Spirit has shown me this particular vision. And, of course, they want you to spend $29.95 to buy their CD or their book. You know, It's, it's something uh, because they want to get rich off these, these teachings. Secondly, though, the false teachers not only were those who claimed to be from God, but they were spreading false teaching. They were spreading, as Peter says, destructive heresies. So it wasn't just a matter of they came in looking good and sounding good, and they were saying they're sent from God, which they weren't. But they're not just there kind of filling in and looking good. No, they're teaching false, destructive heresies. That's what we want to be on, ward, on, on guard against. In fact, the Greek word, therefore, is called heresesis, which literally means a choice. In other words, they're giving you a choice. It also can mean a party or a sect. It's a chosen thought or an action that separates you from others. They want you to separate you out from the church and to follow their little teaching it's because it gives them glory, obviously, and comfort and assurance that They are popular and that people love them. So there's that sense of separating you out or calling you out to join their little clique. Uh, It doesn't always have a bad connotation, by the way. Heresies doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad connotation. But in this sense, he's saying they're drawing you away from the truth. They're drawing you out of the church to follow them. So we need to be careful uh, of anyone who denies the lordship of Christ and seeks to establish their own lordship, if you'd call it. This phrase where he says, even denying the Lord that bought them, has presented a lot of difficulties for commentators, I'm sure you can imagine. Think about that term, even denying the Lord that bought them. Well, is Peter saying here these false teachers lost their salvation or that they can somehow have their sins paid for by Christ and yet go to hell at last? No, that's not what he's saying. First, we need to note that these false teachers have snuck into the church. Okay, They snuck into the church. So they're pretending to be believers. They're pretending to be part of the body of Christ. They're pretending to have been bought by the blood of Christ. They're presenting that picture that they're just like you. They've trusted Christ as their Savior when they haven't. They're presenting a false picture of what it's like, so it appears as though they've been bought by the blood of Christ. They appear to be Christians, but they're not really Christians. So Peter is suggesting here that one of their destructive heresies is that Jesus, who purchased the church by his blood, Is not the sovereign Lord who rules over them. Rather, you can do your own thing. There's that, you know, you can have your own way. There's a literal meaning in the word translated "Lord" here. By the way, in the text, is that he is the sovereign Lord. He is the sovereign Lord overall. They are not. They are not taking that as the truth. They're saying, well, he's Lord, but he's not the sovereign Lord. We can have a difference of opinion here. And that, of course, obviously, we need to reject outright. John identifies them clearly. In First John chapter 2, verse 19, when he says this, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have no doubt have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not at all of us. And that's kind of the picture here, that they come into the church, they sound like they're of us, but once you take a stand for the truth, they suddenly begin to leave. Why? Because they really weren't of you. They really weren't believers. They just appeared to be. And if you don't kick them out or you don't encourage them to leave because you're standing for this truth, eventually they'll kind of blend in with the church and begin sowing their destructive heresy. So it's important to make sure that they are, they are, first of all, confronted with their error and either encouraged to repent or to leave because you don't want them to influence the church. In fact, Jude, in verse 4 of Jude, says, For certain men have crept in unnoticed. And that's the picture. They don't come in, obviously, preaching false teaching. They don't come in, obviously, denying the Lord. But they creep in. They've crept in uh, uh, Jude says, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they come in sounding sweet and and wonderful, but eventually they're denying the Lord, and they're they're leading into, in, in that time in particular, to sexual immorality and other sins that deny Christ at all and cause a chaos in the church. And secondly, Peter here identifies these deceivers as those who shall receive swift destruction, and whose judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. So thus, like Judas, though they appear to be disciples, they prove they weren't by their deeds and their words, and like him, they were destined for damnation. There's a classic example. Jude, obviously, early on, seemed to be one of the disciples. He was uh, uh, accepted, obviously, into the, into the group. Jesus chose him. He knew Jesus, of course, knowing what Judas would end up to be, but He was part of the disciples. He was sent out two by two with the disciples when they went out. But what happened? Obviously, he was not really a believer in Christ. He was looking for a Messiah that would deliver them out of the hands of Rome, perhaps. But he was not true to the Lord. And once persecution came, once Jesus didn't do what he thought he would do, he didn't overthrow the Roman government, Judas was tempted to go to the Pharisees and turn him in. And, of course, ultimately um, felt sorry for himself, but he killed himself knowing that he had uh, traded... Uh, betrayed the lord even though he didn't believe in him he, he betrayed him thinking he was going to be messiah when he wasn't so we need to be on guard and be aware of the the tricks i guess you might say that these men play and not be led astray uh, by their false doctrine and let's face it sadly we we know we've, if you've been around enough and paying attention enough we know even today there are those who claim to be christians but ultimately they deny the lordship of christ and they follow after all manner of man-made doctrines let alone the lust of the flesh, of the world, and Satan's lies as well. In fact, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And we'll look at a couple verses there. Matthew 7, verse 21, I think. Yeah, we'll start at verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21. And this is important. Again, these are those who appear to be God's God's people, but they're really not. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say unto me on that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And And I will declare unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Judas was sent out with the disciples to do what? preach the kingdom of God, to cast out demons, to heal people. Okay, Now, we don't know for sure that he did that. We were told that they went out two by two, and they came back telling Christ that they had done that, rejoicing in that. So let's assume that Judas was able to, by obviously not his own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit working within him. So he came back saying, haven't we done wonderful works in your name? But ultimately, he wasn't Christ. He wasn't a true believer in Christ. So we need to be careful about those who boast about being servants of God, if ultimately they end up turning against God and against his truth, they begin preaching false doctrine, they begin to soak discord in the church. So we have to be careful. Again, we don't go around judging people indiscriminately, but we need to be aware of their fruits, of what they're teaching, and whether that teaching aligns with scripture. That's one of the key reasons that Brian's been teaching the the, uh, confession of faith, because the confession of faith helps us to get all the doctrines that we need to know lined up from scripture so we can have a sense of of understanding of these things. So when someone comes and brings a false idea, we can say, well, wait a minute. According to the confession of faith, which is based upon the scriptures, this is what we believe. Why are you teaching us this other this other uh, subject or this other principle, which isn't found in scripture, isn't found there. So that's the importance of knowing not just the scriptures itself, but what they teach. What, what is the, the structure of our faith? What is the foundation of our faith It's based upon the word of God and the doctrines that are anchored in that word. And once you know those doctrines, then you can begin to be aware when someone starts spreading a false doctrine, saying, wait a minute, that doesn't line up with scripture. So that's really one of the key things of us going through this confession of faith for the second time, as well as encouraging us to study the scripture. Study to show yourself approved, it says. Workmen that need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, Paul tells Timothy. Well, that behooves us to be on guard and to study the word. we're not studying the word, then we're not going to be prepared when someone starts bringing in these kind of suggestive, well, this sounds like a good truth or it sounds appealing to the ear and it seems popular, you know, in in the world today. No, we need to back up and say, is it aligned with scripture? Is it aligned with the principles of scripture? If it doesn't, then we need to reject it and we need to reject those who teach that and call them out to repentance or if they don't repent, to turn away from them, not allow them to be a part of our ministry. As Peter warned Back in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he said, be even more diligent to make your call and election. Sure, we have to be diligent. We can't be casual and careless and think, oh, it's okay, you know, we'll get there eventually. No, we need to study. We need to be on guard. We need to be warned. Let's not be caught up in these false teachers and these lies because the way of truth will be evil spoken of, as Peter says here. The pernicious or destructive ways, he uses that language there in chapter 2, spoken of here by Peter, it's a Greek expression used elsewhere in the Bible to describe sexual excesses and extremes. And we know how destructive that's been in our church in recent years. God's people should pursue holiness, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, to avoid the lust of the flesh, to avoid false doctrines. Okay? Holiness involves not only uh, avoiding impurities of the flesh, but it also uh, involves pursuing the truth and knowing the truth and living in the light of the truth. So that's the challenge that Peter is bringing to these people is, number one, be aware of these false teachers, but you have to know the scriptures well in order to see what they're teaching is false and then have nothing to do with them. Make sure that they're pushed out of the church. They're not allowed to be there. If necessary, be firm with them and be uh, even you know, very harsh with them to make sure that no one is tricked by their teaching. And is led astray. Now, Peter goes on here. We'll look at the second half. That's the first three verses. We'll look at verses 4 through 10a. And what we're going to look at here is the history of God's judgment. Peter doesn't just say, here's what you need to do. He says, here's an example. Let's go back in church history or in the history of God's people. Let's see how God dealt with these situations, how he dealt with false teachers in the past. So, after declaring God's certain punishment on these false teachers, as he did in the latter part of chapter 1, he gives us this proof. Okay? And let's look at verses four through eight to start with. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Quote, for that righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds, unquote. We'll stop right there, okay? And we're going to go on with verse 9 in just a moment. So he's giving us these examples. He's saying, okay, here's three illustrations from the past to show the certainty of God's wrath on those who oppose him and how he preserves and how he protects those who love him. Okay, that's the, the, the contrast here. His judgment on the wicked, on those who have teaching false, teach, false teaching, and his blessings upon those who are his people. So first, he speaks of the fallen angels who sinned against God. Now, we don't know when exactly or what type of sin they committed, but in a parallel passage in Jude chapter 6, we're told that they did not keep their proper abode. The point in the beginning of this long if statement is to show that if God did not spare angels who stood in his very presence in glory, think about that. Here's creatures who stand, were standing before the presence of God, and you think, boy, they have to be pretty holy, they have to be pretty pure to do that. Well, if God didn't spare them when they went astray, if he judged them uh, when they uh, went off from his will, then he will not spare these false teachers, Peter is referring to, who seek to lead his people astray. In fact, let's turn back to Job. Job chapter four, with me, please. Job chapter four. And we'll look at verse uh, 17 through 19. Job chapter four, verses 17 through 19. And this is Eliaphaz speaking here, but can a mortal be more righteous than God? Can a man be more pure than his maker? If he puts no trust in his servants, referring there to angels, if he charges his angels with air, how much more those who dwell in houses of clay, whose foundation is in the dust, who are crushed before a moth. So if God judges his angels, if he doesn't, you know, if he charges his angels with air, how much more is he going to charge those false teachers who come in and try to sow discord in his church? This is a clear example here that God is not a respecter of persons or of even creatures in this case angels if he holds angels accountable and will judge them and even kick them out of heaven as a result then obviously he's not going to tolerate false teachers in his church and this is an example that Peter's using to show how um, sincere and how faithful God is to his word that he will not allow these these creatures to come in there if God makes excuses for, for doesn't make excuses for anyone then we should not think lightly of sin okay the angels you th- would have thought would have been You know, in perfect fellowship with God, would have everything they ever could want, and yet they still rebelled, and therefore God punished them. Note Peter's words here back in our text in verse 1 about swift destruction of these false teachers and his example of the fallen angels that follows that warning. He tells us that that they were cast into hell. The word for hell here in the Greek is Tartarus, which is borrowed from the Greek mythology. And it describes a place lower than Hades, which is reserved for the most wicked of humans, gods, and, and demons. <coughs> Excuse me. The Jews adopted that word, Tartarus, to describe the place where fallen angels were sent, a terrible place of torture, even lower than, than Hades. That's, that's how, how, how bad it was in the sense that they deserved that, that type of punishment. Peter describes them as being placed there in chains of darkness or some other translation have pits of darkness. It's a terrible place, a terrible place to be put, which shows how uh, important it was for God to clear them out of heaven because they were, they were rebelling against him, rebelling against his truth. It's a holding area, you might call it. It's a holding area until the day of judgment that they have been reserved in for the future, and this no doubt would be the lake of fire described in Revelation 20, verse 10. Also, just as a side note, this Tartarus, as we call it, may be, a, may be the place, we don't know for sure, it may be the place that Jesus visited between his death and resurrection. If you remember back in our study, which has been a while, obviously, First Peter chapter 3, uh, verses, I think it was um, verses 5 and 6. No, I think it was actually further back than that. Uh, I think verse 18, Peter preached victory over the spirits, uh, Jesus preached victory over the spirits in prison, quote-unquote, Obviously, not all fallen angels are bound up in this Tartarus for, because they roam the earth today in the form of demons. But they're all afraid of being sent there. If you recall, when Jesus came to the Gadarenes there, and these, this man came out of the tombs, and eventually Jesus you know, told them you know, that uh, they had to get out, they cried out to Jesus saying, Have you come to torment us before the time? In other words, are you going to throw us into hell now, into Tartarus now? And then, of course, Jesus said, Okay, I'll let you go out into these pigs. And eventually, of course, they... I went into the water, but they knew that it wasn't the time for them to get their final judgment, and they were crying out to Jesus, Are you come here to torment us before the time? So they're aware of the timing of things, they're aware of, the, aware of their ultimate judgment. And Jesus, of course, had that, op, had that option to do that, but he didn't at that time. So we know there are some demons in the earth right now, they're not all the angels are in this Tartarus, but eventually they all will be thrown in there. Peter's next example here in our text of God's past judgment to serve as a warning to these false teachers is that of the flood. Now, as Simon Kistemacher points out in his, his uh, commentary, he says, in both epistles, First and Second Peter, Peter uses the theme of the flood to depict the disobedience of the ungodly and the salvation of the righteous. So this is the, the contrast he's showing there, the disobedience and the judgment on the ungodly and the blessings on the righteous, those who are trusting in God. What were people like in the ancient world? Well, as Peter calls it, before the flood. Well, Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5 tells us that they, in every intent of the thoughts of their heart, was only evil continually. That's what the people were like, unfortunately, in that time before the flood. That's why the flood was brought upon them. Also, in verse 11 and 12, we are told that the earth, in 11 and 12 of Genesis chapter 6, we're told that the earth was corrupt and full of violence. Not just, you know, some violence here, not a little corruption there, but no, throughout the earth, it was corrupt and full of violence. And therefore, God was bringing this judgment upon them because of what was going on there. And sadly, that description, when you think about it, that description would really fit our world today, wouldn't it? In many places, it's full of violence, it's full of corruption, it's full of sin. It's not like we've improved. (laughs) We've We've gotten better in the last couple thousand years. Unfortunately, in many ways, we've gotten worse, haven't we? I mean... You would think that somehow we would have you know grown and learned and, and become more uh, i guess you might godly in a sense as people, but we haven't we're just as bad as the people back in Noah's day when God brought the judgment of the flood, and unfortunately we've even created probably worse sins. who knows of course we don't know exactly what it was like back then, other than their intentions of their thought were only evil continually well're we're, we're gaining on them if we haven't already got there by the way um God spared Noah, along with his family, and he calls him a preacher of righteousness. Interestingly, that's the only place in the Bible where this description of Noah is used, where he's called a preacher of righteousness. Now, of course, he was not preaching his own righteousness, uh, but he was preaching the righteousness of God. Hebrews 11:7 tells us that Noah moved with godly fear, obeyed God, and became an heir of righteousness, a righteousness which is according to faith. In other words, our righteousness before God must be this alien righteousness, as one person has called it. A righteousness not of our own, but one given to us via faith in the righteous one, which is Jesus Christ. So the righteousness that we have is, is our own personal righteousness will not get us into heaven. But if we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ because we put our faith in him, then we will be accepted by God. We will be justified by faith in him. Again, if we think, if God did not spare the ancient world, will he spare these false teachers? That's the example Peter is saying here. If God did that, he judged the world back then. Will he let these false teachers get away with what they're doing? I don't think so. Now, Peter's last example uh, of God's sure judgment is that of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the sparing of Lot. In the case of the flood, eight people were saved. But in the judgment, on the wicked cities of the plains of the Jordan, only three people, Lot and his two daughters, were spared uh, because of God's mercy in that situation. They survived the wrath of God. And even Lot's wife, though, was judged because she turned and was turned into a pillar of salt for her looking back and lusting after whatever wealth and and things they might have had back there in Sodom. Uh, She turned back from God, and God God had declared that city worthy of destruction, but she looked back longingly at it. Of course, we see that in... Genesis chapter 19, verse 26, that his judgment came upon even Lot's wife at that time. The people of Israel were very familiar with this account, by the way, of Sodom and Gomorrah. We think about, well, there's so many stories and incidents in the Bible that we could, you know, sometimes we come across as we're studying, but we don't always remember them all. But the people of Israel were very familiar with, in fact, God reminded them through the prophets throughout history. Uh, in, in the book of Deut- Deuteronomy and, and again in other books, Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and Zephaniah reference the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me give you that list again. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, Amos, and Zephaniah are all books that reference Sodom and Gomorrah. So the people of Israel had no reason to forget about it. You know, say, oh, I don't remember that story. Yeah, all these prophets were reminding you throughout history. that This is God's judgment on those who turned away from him. And this is his righteous judgment upon them. It's precisely Peter's point here in verse 6, and it's worth, it is both a warning to false teachers and an assurance that the righteous uh, will be blessed by God, that God is just and he will bless his people, but he will judge the wicked. So we need to keep that in mind as, as Peter uses these, these references. Yes, judgment is certain upon his people, but in the midst of that judgment, he shows mercy and grace, and that's what we can be, be rejoicing in, that though we deserve his judgment, Yet in the midst of that, he has been gracious and brought us out of his wrath into eternal life and forgiveness in Christ. So that's the contrast Peter is trying to bring out kind of in a sub sense of this text. He's showing mostly the judgment upon these false teachers. And he's giving us examples here of what God has done. But in the midst of those examples, he also shows his mercy. In the case of Noah and in the case of Lot, even though judgment was all around them, God still blessed them and brought them out of that judgment and showed them mercy because they trusted in him. And it's interesting, of course, that in the case of Lot, uh, he's referred to in this text only as being someone who was troubled by this judgment. If you go back and read the text in Genesis, it sounds like Lot was not really a, a great guy. You know, he was not really someone whom we'd recommend as a righteous man. But based on this text, from what Peter is saying, or under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was actually troubled, but he didn't obviously live out the life he should have lived, and therefore it got him into trouble, it got him into temptation, and he was reluctant, you might say, to leave the city, even though he knew God's judgment was coming upon him. So there's that contrast that Peter's giving here. As one author pointed out, though Peter uses Noah and Lot as similar examples, yet there's that difference that God protected the one, in the case of Noah, and he rescued the other. Okay, There's a difference there. God protected Noah, but he rescued Lot. Okay, Noah obviously was living a righteous life, and God protected him, blessed him, He's spoken of as being righteous in his generations. But in the case of Lot, he had to rescue him. The question is, which are you, beloved? Is God protecting you because you're living for him? You're seeking to be true to him? Or is he having to rescue you by bringing you out of trouble because you've ignored him and lived your own way? Which one are you? We need to ask ourselves that question daily. Am I being rescued or am I being... uh, Am I being drawn out or, or, having to, or I'm being blessed because God is, is pleased with me in what I'm doing. So keep that in mind as we see these examples uh, coming out here. Lot was distressed, it says, or vexed by the ungodly lifestyle of those around him. But he was apparently no preacher of righteousness. Noah was called a preacher of righteousness. Obviously Lot was not a preacher of right- righteousness because he had to be rescued by angels. We might look with a questioning eye on, on Lot, but at least he was, in that sense, trusting God, even though he wasn't living for God at the time. And so we need to be careful that we are both trusting God and living for God. Now, obviously, Abraham thought he was righteous, for he pleaded with God not to destroy the cities if there were only 10 righteous people in there. So he assumed, we're looking at Abraham's looking at his nephew Lot as being a righteous man. He, He pleaded with God. Otherwise, why would he plead with God? Because he would know that Lot wasn't a righteous man and therefore deserved God's wrath. But he pleads for for Lot, even though he was not living as he ought to, to live, he pleaded for his nephew Lot because he believed he truly was righteous. And Peter says he was. Where Peter got that from? Only in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, from what we can tell. He was justified by faith, but he was longing for the riches of this world and therefore Instead of having a life wholly devoted to God, it was devoted to the things of this world. And that's a warning for us there as well. Now, in verse 9 of our text, Peter concludes his argument here with the goal of giving encouragement to his readers and reaffirms the surety of the punishment of the wicked. What's the point of these three examples? Well, assurance that God is in control. And that's important. Everything isn't just happening haphazardly. God is in control. He will bless the righteous. He will judge the wicked. Here's examples of how he's done it in the past. And we need, that's what we really need, beloved, in this time period. When we see what's going on in our present day, when we see all the troubles around us, God's still in control. He's still on the throne. He will bless the righteous, He will judge the wicked. We need to keep that in mind. Okay, turn with me to Psalm 34, please. Psalm 34. And we'll look at verses 15 through 19. Psalm 34. Verse 15 through 19. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. There's a very comforting thought. God's not ever distracted. He's never on vacation. He's never turned away and said, oops, I didn't see you doing that, or I didn't see that happening to you. No, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil and to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. There's a summary of what Peter's talking about, of these examples, these three examples. God's eye is upon us. He hears our cry when we're trying to live for him and glorify him. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. Verse 17, the righteous cry out and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves those who have a contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And it goes on to that that text obviously goes on to a messianic text there about Christ and being broken. So God protects his people, but he will judge the wicked. There's assurances given to us in Scripture that God is consistent. He does not waver in his thoughts and his desires. He's always the same. The circumstances of our lives might be troubling and they might seem and the seeming lack of godly leadership, for instance in our government, uh, might be discouraging. But God is still on the throne, and he still has and will continue to work things, all things together for good to those who what? Who love him and who keep his commandments. There's the key, isn't it? He doesn't make all things work together for good to those who ignore him and don't keep his commandments. Job isn't, I mean, Lot is an example of that. He is declared by Peter as a righteous man, and yet he didn't live according to the way of God. Therefore, God brought, in a sense, judgment on his family. His own wife was taken from him. And his daughters ended up leading him into sin. So we need to be careful that we follow that example that we are to be those who love him and keep his commandments. Calvin made this comment on the first half of verse 9 here in our text. He said, the meaning of the first clause, let me read verse 9 again just so we get that clear example of what he's talking about. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. Calvin says this, The meaning of the first clause is that this law is prescribed by the Lord to all the godly, that they are to be proved by various temptations, but that they are to entertain good hope of success because they are never to be deprived of his aid or his help. And Psalm 4 verse 3 says, But know that the Lord has set apart him that is godly for himself, and the Lord will hear when I call unto him. We may be faced with trials and troubles, but God hasn't forgotten us. And he will hear if we cry unto him. If we seek to live in a manner pleasing to him, we seek to love him and keep his commandments, we may face trials and troubles, but if we call unto him, he will hear. He is there listening to us. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't turn away from us. Finally, in the latter part of verse 9 and in the first half of verse 10, we see the certain judgment on the wicked and their particular sins, which especially deserve God's wrath. If Peter indeed comparing the present-day heretics to those of Noah and Lot's time, uh, which, and not to mention the angels, then two particular sins stand out here, that of sexual immorality and rebellion against authority. Let me read verse 10 after we just read verse 9. The first half of verse 10, And especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. Unfortunately, beloved, these two sins are particularly present in our society today, aren't they? In fact, that sentence, unfortunately, beloved, these two sins are particularly present in our society today. I wrote that sentence 13 years ago when I first did a study on this text and preached it. 13 years ago, our society was rampant with sexual sins, immorality, and rebellion against God. It's still true. It's even worse. As we look around us, at the extent of the wickedness that we've fallen into. It's sad, but that's what we're dealing with. That's what we have to be on guard against. These uh, Jude's letter in, in verse 8 parallels what Peter is teaching here. In fact, some believe that there was perhaps some um, sharing of information between Jude and Peter. We're not sure, or that they read one another's letters. But it parallels Peter's saying here, and these heretics may have been promoting a homosexual lifestyle. He calls it the lust of uncleanness in 2 Peter 2 verse 9 and in Jude verse 80 he says these dreamers pollute their own bodies which would follow the pattern of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a sign of God having given them up Romans chapter 1 verse 24 through 27 which in itself is a form of God's judgment. If God gives you up to your sin that is a judgment upon you. And unfortunately people have been given up to sin in our society today. It has become a plague that is sweeping throughout, worse than COVID, throughout our society today. Woe what to them who have fallen into such a state. We should pray earnestly for any we know caught up in a lifestyle like these things described here by Peter, lest they find themselves given up under wrath. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, Paul tells us, For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, or covetous man who is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Has any inheritance. Anyone who practices these sins without repentance has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Peter mentioned in his description of these sins that they despise government. That's the other sin besides the sexual ones. They despise government. As Simon Kistemacher says in his commentary, the doctrines espoused by these teachers lead to deliberate rejection of divine authority. These words communicate that these teachers scorn the authority of Jesus Christ. They didn't look upon him as an authority at all. And Paul warns us in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that such rejecters of God's mercy in Christ store up for themselves, quote, wrath unto the day of wrath and the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Now, it's no pleasure to me to use these harsh words, but this is scripture. This is God's judgment upon those who spread the lies of Satan and try to pollute the church with their teachings. So God does not treat people like this, as we already read, false teachers, lightly. We should not treat them lightly either. We should love them and call them to repentance. But if they continue to spread the truth, we should reject them. We should not allow them to pollute our churches and spread their lies around us. Ultimately, the root of all sin, as it was first patterned by Satan, is what? Rebellion against the rule of God. The psalmist expresses it clearly in Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Let's go back there. Last portion we'll look at real quick. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 5. And it should be a familiar psalm, I think, to all of us. It's a powerful psalm. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Is that not really the goal of the progressive left today, to break God's cords uh, from them, to be uh, free to do whatever they want to do? Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, the Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Verse 6, And yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. God will judge the wicked. So we need to have compassion on them, but we also need to be bold in saying, no, that's wrong. You cannot teach that here. You cannot hold that here. You cannot force your lies upon the truth. And God will judge you if you don't keep, if you don't turn away from that. Jesus illustrated that in his parable in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27 about the minus. That it doesn't do any good if you have, you know, uh, some things you say, well, I'm going, to, I'm going to serve the Lord. But he comes to see you and eventually you've done nothing. You've done nothing with what he's given you in the way of gifts. We need to be careful about just kind of ignoring God. Those who deny the lordship of Christ today are in this group who reject authority. Don't be found named among them, beloved. And let's be frank. If Jesus is our Savior, then he is our Lord, or you don't know him. You cannot serve two masters, it says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Anyone who claims to be a follower of Christ must also be in submission to his will. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll like my commandments. You'll find them acceptable. You'll occasionally follow them. No, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So in conclusion, in the Greek, Second Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10, the reason we've covered it through 10a is that actually if you look in the Greek text, it's one sentence. From verse 1, to 10a is one sentence and then begins a new paragraph and for whatever reason the writers put that extra sentence in there at the end of verse 10 which technically is the beginning of a new paragraph that's why we've stopped it at 1a there so that's why we did that and we'll continue obviously with the latter half of chapter 10 next week in fact if you look at the text here uh, very carefully I didn't bring it t- uh, today but if you look at the text the chapter is set up in a chiastic outline okay where it begins at one point goes up hits that point comes back down and repeats it. So. There's a chiastic outline to this chapter. And that's why there's a break here at verse 10a. God has shown throughout history that though he is long-suffering, yet he judges the wicked. He judges the wicked in time. And he will judge them in eternity, too, obviously. He knows how to deliver his people. Uh, He knows his righteous one. And he will bring them out of the midst of the wrath that he will bring upon the wicked. Peter's point is that the doom of these false teachers that are troubling his readers is sure And therefore, they should not heed them or even tolerate them in their churches. While we too must be patient, as I said, and be merciful, as our Father in heaven is merciful, and seek to point people to the truth, we are not to tolerate blatant or subtle errors that lead God's people away from trust in Christ alone for salvation. You know, in God's word uttered 2,000 years ago, they're still true today, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. No one. So today, if any preacher or teacher who denies the Trinity or the Lordship of Christ, who teaches that we are saved by any other means, than faith alone, in Christ alone, in his finished work alone, do not heed them, but rebuke them in love, and point them to the word of God. Paul's solemn words of warning in Galatians chapter one verse eight are still true today, but even if we, and here's these kind of tying in with what Peter's teaching, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Peter's concern for his saints in North Asia Minor drove him to harshly condemn these false teachers that were troubling them. We do need to be on guard against false teachers today and make no excuses for them, but warn those who would follow them of the just judgment of a righteous God. Let's pray.